All right, you guys. Well, this evening, we are going to be turning our attention to the third chapter in the Canons of Dort. And the third chapter is different than the first two and the last one because they contain what we would call the third and fourth points of main doctrine. So Dort, in this third chapter, puts conversion and corruption on the same line. And so we're going to take them together. If you guys remember, the five points of Calvinism are only remembered like that as five points because of the five points of the Remonstrance. And so we're dealing with corruption and conversion in these articles. And that means we're thinking about what is called total depravity as well as irresistible grace. It's not exactly the nice little order of the acronym that TULIP is, and that's okay because, again, Dort is touching on more than just TULIP, and they are specifically answering objections from men who were worshiping and teaching alongside of them, those men who presented the remonstrance. So we're going to look at the first three to start this evening of the third and fourth main points of doctrine, and again, this is called Human Corruption, Conversion to God, and the Way it Occurs. So Article 1 reads, the effects of the fall on human nature. Human beings were created originally in the image of God and were furnished in mind with a true and sound knowledge of the creator and things spiritual, in will and heart with righteousness and in all emotions with purity. Indeed, the whole human being was holy. However, rebelling against God at the devil's instigation and by their own free will, they deprived themselves of these outstanding gifts. Rather, in the place, they brought upon themselves blindness, terrible darkness, futility, and distortion of judgment in their minds, perversity, defiance, hardness of their hearts in their wills, and finally, impurity in all of their emotions. Right? So speaking spiritually, the spiritual punishment that came upon them in their spiritual death when they violated the covenant that they were in with God, specifically Adam. Article 2, the spread of corruption. It says, human beings brought forth children of the same nature as themselves after the fall. That is to say, being corrupt, they brought forth corrupt children. The corruption spread by God's just judgment from Adam and Eve to all their descendants, except for Christ alone. Not by way of imitation, as in former times the Pelagians would have it, but by way of the propagation of their perverted nature. And then Article 3, Total Inability. Therefore, all people are conceived in sin, and born children of wrath, unfit for any saving good, inclined to evil, dead in their sins, and slaves to sins, slave to sin. Without the grace of the regenerated Holy Spirit, they are neither willing nor able to return to God, to reform their distorted nature, or even to dispose themselves to such reform. So, the, the first article addresses the state of man before the fall. Right? That's how it began. And so biblically, we would recognize four possible states of humanity. There's, and we're speaking of the state of our nature and our ability within those natures, within those kinds of natures. And so the first kind, uh, the first possibility is before the fall, then there's after the fall, then there's after salvation, and then glorification. But the article is mentioning that first state, that pre-fall condition that was in Adam and Eve before they broke the covenant that they were in with God. They were holy and pure in mind, will, heart, and emotions, we read in Article 1. And said differently, that means that they had no effects or no consequence of sin in them. They had an intrinsic holiness 
because of the reality that God made them in his image, and they were good in both spirit and body. They had the ability then to please God or to rebel against them. That's what they had in their freedom to do. And you notice that this article mentioned free will. It's a caricature of Calvinism to say that Calvinism doesn't teach a free will. What we believe, or what Calvinism teaches, is that a will is free within the limits that one's nature allows. Not a libertarian free will to do whatever we want when we want, but a creaturely freedom under the sovereign reign of God. And before the fall, Adam and Eve could choose to obey or choose to disobey God. But when a person is under the curse, born a child of wrath by nature, as Ephesians 2 says, then the will is only free to rebel against God. Apart from regeneration, that is the condition of humanity. That is the way we were all born into this world. We're unable to do what is pleasing to God. We're not free to do it even. Notice in Romans 8, uh, Romans 8, starting at verse 5, this is not speaking of one man who lives two different kinds of ways, but two different kinds of men who live two different ways. So Romans 8, verse 5 begins, <clears throat> For those who live according to the flesh... So for those, right? Not it's different types of people. For those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, Look, this is speaking of ability. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So you see, it's an issue of ability. Can a person who is not born again, a person who does not live according to the Spirit, please God? And the answer that Scripture tells us is a definite no. Those in the flesh cannot please God. If you notice in Article 3, it's, it's called a total inability. And the drafters of Dort were certainly thinking of Romans 8 when they said, without the grace of the regenerating Holy Spirit, they, meaning people who are not saved, are neither willing nor able to return to God to reform their distorted nature or even to dispose themselves to such reform. In every part of their nature, they are inclined to do evil. Inclined to reject God. There you go. And the problem is way is in a way, it's even worse than that. Because it's shared down all through humanity. The second article points out that we all come into the world with inherited guilt. Remember, we are, we are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's what the Apostle Paul said to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 2, speaking to believers. He was reminding them that everyone is born into this world by nature a child of wrath. We have what we would call an inherited depravity. I mentioned Romans 5.12 yesterday, last night, but listen to Romans 5.16. Romans 5.16 says, And the free gift is not like the result 
of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass, what, what do we think he's talking about there? He's talking about Adam's sin in the garden, right? Where God gave Adam a charge to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and everything else was on limits for Adam. But when Adam broke that, that brought about sin into the world and into Adam and into Eve even. And so it says, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift of salvation, grace, faith, following many trespasses brought justification. Let me read 17 as well. For by, if, or if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life. Through the one man, Jesus Christ. You see, we are conceived in sin and dead in sin. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things. And this problem of sin spread to all humanity. By God's judgment, through what we would recognize as a federal head, that is to say that Adam represented us all in the garden, And when he fell in the garden and he sinned and he broke God's law then, he brought guilt upon himself, but not just upon himself. He also brought it upon everyone else. That's the whole point of Romans 15 through 20 even, or even Romans 5, 12 through 20. That's where it starts comparing Adam to Christ. You guys, you should understand that we all, that we aren't sinners because we see others sin and then we imitate them in their sin. That was a Pelagian error. As the canon say, Pelagian was a pastor in the 5th century uh, who ended up teaching that there was no such thing as original sin, that people weren't born corrupt, they didn't have inherited guilt from Adam, and people just sinned because they saw others sinning and they learned it from them. That's not what the scriptures say. The scriptures tell us that we are sinners because we're born that way. Because all humanity, unless you are in a covenant with Christ, you are in a covenant under Adam until and if they are in the new covenant with Christ. And so we sin because we're sinners. We don't, we're not sinners because we sin, but we sin because we are sinners by nature, children of wrath. And so we need more than a little or even more than a lot of help. It's not divine assistance that we need to rectify this problem, as the Arminians were teaching. But what we need to overcome this issue of sin in our lives is a supernatural miracle. We need resurrection from the dead, and that alone is a work of grace from God. So continuing on, the canons will explain some ways in which we might know of truth and how it is that that impacts us. So Article 4 is called the inadequacy of the light of nature. It says, There is to be sure a certain light of nature remaining in all people after the fall, by virtue of which they retain some notions about God, natural things, and the difference between what is moral and immoral, and demonstrate a certain eagerness for virtue and for good outward behavior. But this light of nature is far from enabling humans to come to a saving knowledge of God and conversion to Him, so far, in fact, that they do not use it rightly even in matters of nature and society. Instead, 
in various ways, they completely distort this light, whatever its precise character, and suppress it in unrighteousness. In doing so, all people render themselves without excuse before God. So thinking of Romans 1, we'll talk about that in a minute. Article 5 is then the inadequacy of the law, the law of God. So in this respect, what is true of the light of nature is also true of the Ten Commandments given by God through Moses, specifically to the Jews, there in Exodus 20. And it says, For humans cannot obtain saving grace through the Decalogue. The Decalogue is those first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Because, although it does not expose the magnitude of their sin and increasingly convict them of their guilt, yet it does not offer a remedy or enable them to escape from human misery, and indeed, weakened as it is by the flesh, leaves the offender under a curse. Right? So in other words, the law of God, by keeping it, doesn't save us. It doesn't make us good. What the law does, Article 5 is saying, is that it shows to us our sin. And from there, we, that's when we realize that we need this supernatural help from God. So here, we see the weakness of two things that are, in fact, actually good things. But what Dort is doing is reminding us that the gospel alone is the power of God unto salvation, Romans 1.16. And so first, there is the inadequacy of the light of nature. We read about that in Romans 2. And this also speaks toward Article 5, as you see. So Romans 2, if you were in Romans, just flip over a page or two. Verse 14 and 15. For when Gentiles, so Gentiles are people who are not Jewish, when Gentiles who do not have the law, right, so... The law, the Ten Commandments, that was given to the nation of Israel. The other nations, they didn't know about that as divine revelation until they met some people who were Jewish. But it says, for, for when Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature, by their human ability being made in the image of God, do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. 15. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So in other words, after the fall, because mankind is made in God's image, there is some rational reason in fallen mankind that is aware of God and what he is like. Romans 1 would say that fallen man is suppressing this knowledge of God. Fallen man is pushing it down, this knowledge of God, in their minds and in their hearts because of the sin that lives in them. But this should help to clear up another caricature of Calvinism. It's often thought that when we talk about total depravity, that, that we're saying that that means people are as bad as they can be. But that's not what total depravity means. When we talk about total depravity, we're not saying that people are as bad as they can be, but what we're saying is that people are fully and completely affected by the fall. And so if you look around at the world and you see people who are lost doing good things, doing kind things, and even what we would call loving things, when people see that, they would then maybe perhaps turn around and say, oh, well, look, total depravity can't be true because look, here is this... Here are these lost people who are doing these basic good and right things. So they dismiss Calvinism because of that. But that's not what total depravity means. What it means 
is that the whole nature of man has fallen because of Adam. And in that sense is what we think of total depravity. The whole nature, those spiritual and physical aspects of human nature are in bondage to sin, in other words. Uh, And even the good things that unsaved people do are still, properly speaking, sin. The reason for that is because they're not done in faith. They're not, those good things aren't done with an intent to glorify God and please God. And so you could have, for example, a mother who is not a believer and she loves her children. She even, you know, sacrifices her life for her children, works two jobs, three jobs to care for her children. Is that a God glorifying thing? Well, it's a good thing that she loves her children and she's taking care of them, but it's not really a God glorifying thing in the sense that she's not doing it to please God. Because she doesn't believe in God. She's just doing something by the light of her nature, which is intrinsic to humanity, knowing what God's law is inherently. And so Romans 2 says in some cases that this reality will even accuse them in judgment before God. And so mankind then, as Romans 1 and Romans 2 both assert, will be without excuse before God. We, as people can't go before God and say, well, look, God, I didn't know you were this way. I didn't know you were holy. I didn't know that you demanded goodness and righteousness because by the light of nature that is in us, the conscience we have, the will we have, the ability to reason, that proclaims unto us that there is a God. Article 5 shouldn't be very controversial. All it's doing is explaining the use of the law in the life of mankind. The law of God is not meant to provide saving grace itself by faithful obedience to it, for no one's able to do that anyway. The law is designed to show us who God is and what he's like, and then also in that to point us to a need of our Savior. God uses the law to convict us of sin. In Galatians, Paul calls it a schoolmaster to show us our need for Christ. In Romans, Paul says that if if God's law had said, do not covet, he would have not known then what it is to covet. Hi. Hey. I wanted to come in and say goodnight to you all. Okay. Good night. It was a pleasure waiting on you this weekend, and I look forward to seeing you guys all up here again. So I'll see. I guess you all will be here in the morning, right? Yes, ma'am. Because I'll be making you French toast, so I'll look forward to seeing you So everybody sleep well. Thank you. All right, let's get our minds off of French toast now. <laughs> it's in there. It's in there. Even unbelievers can enjoy French toast, right? That's part of the light of nature. <laughs> so it would, be all, it would be all right to do that. But thinking of Article 5, okay? It's explaining the law of God to us. So the light of nature in mankind, mankind being made in God's image, and then the law of God, which we inherently know something about. Even if you've never heard of the Ten Commandments before, most people would understand this, and I think R.C. Sprawl was the man who made this famous. Most people intrinsically know that you know, stealing is wrong. And if you don't think stealing is wrong, well, then if somebody you know, takes your wallet and doesn't give it back to you, you would not be okay with that. Because we inherently know stealing is wrong. And of course, that is the seventh or the eighth commandment. Do not steal. Um, So the law's point, though, the law is good, but it is not going to be something that shows us our need of 
salvation. It's not something that explains to us salvation. It points us to our need of salvation. And then the law, after a person is saved, it takes on a new role in the life of a believer. At that point, it's our joy to keep God's law when we're believing in Christ. But now the canons turn their attention to the good thing. The light of nature and man, the Decalogue, the law of God, those are good things. Now it's going to turn its attention to the good thing, the gospel, the good news. So let's read 6 through 9. Article 6 is the saving power of the gospel. It says, What therefore neither the light of nature nor the law can do, God accomplishes by the power of the Holy Spirit through the word of the ministry of reconciliation. This is the gospel about the Messiah through which it has pleased God to save believers in both the Old and New Testaments. Article 7, God's freedom in revealing the gospel. In the Old Testament, God revealed this secret of his will to a small number. In the New Testament, now without any distinction between peoples, God discloses it to a larger number. The reason for this difference must not be ascribed to a greater worth of one nation over another or to a better use of the light of nature, but to the free good pleasure and the undeserved love of God. Therefore, those who receive so much grace beyond and in spite of all they deserve ought to acknowledge it with a humble and thankful heart. On the other hand, with the apostle they ought to adore but certainly not inquisitively search into the severity and the justice of God's judgment on others who do not receive this grace. And why maybe is that in some regard is because we don't know if someone is going to be saved in the future or not. We don't know that. So there's wisdom, pastoral counsel there. Article 8, the earnest call of the gospel. Nevertheless, all who are called through the gospel are called earnestly not a fake gospel call. For urgently and most genuinely God makes known in the word what is pleasing to him, that those who are called should come to God. God also earnestly promises rest for their souls and eternal life to all who do come to him and believe. Article 9, human responsibility for rejecting the gospel. The fact that many who are called through the ministry of the gospel do not come and are not brought to conversion must not be blamed on the gospel, nor on Christ, who is offered through the gospel, nor on God, who calls them through the gospel, and even bestows various gifts on them, but on the people themselves who are called. Some, in self-assurance, do not even entertain the word of life. Others do entertain it, but do not take it to heart. And for that reason, after the fleeting joy of a temporary faith, they relapse. Others choke the seed of the word with the thorns of life's cares and with the pleasure of the world, and bring forth no fruits. This our Savior teaches in the parable of the sower, which is Matthew 13. So, notice the first thing that it asserts. When the light of nature, and what, or what the light of nature and the law cannot do, the gospel accomplishes. And it's the same for both the Old and the New Testaments. There's no way of thinking about two ways of salvation. There's not a, a way of salvation before the cross and then a different way of salvation after the cross through um, individual, th- through just grace alone. So it's this idea that would say maybe salvation before the cross through individual merit and grace and then grace alone after the cross would be a wrong way of thinking about how God saves people. That's not it. It's always the same way. It's always salvation by grace. In fact, I think you could make an argument 
that, the, that at the heart of the Arminians, when they say that in the final analysis, it is man who determines if they're saved or not. Granted, they do affirm a need of grace too, a go before grace, and then, then a person latches on to that go before grace and they are saved. But when they make that argument, they actually aren't much different than the Pharisees of Jesus's day who thought they had to make the most of grace given to them with obedience to the law. It's not exactly the same, but it's, it's close. And so what Dort also affirms is that the announcement of the gospel to lost souls is an earnest endeavor. And you know why they would be compelled to say this, right? It's because those in the Arminian party, and this mindset still exists today, but they would say, well, if salvation comes to people because they're elected before the foundation of the world, then why even share the gospel at all? Or the gospel really isn't genuine if you say it to the non-elect. Or why bother with evangelism if the elect are going to be saved anyway? Well, the point of Dort here is that we, as the means of grace that God uses to announce his gospel, we can't tell if a person is elect or not. And so we, with zeal, preach the truth of God and the gospel. And what will happen if one believes it? Because if they believe it, they will receive what the gospel promises. So it's an earnest offering of the gospel call that is given. But when someone doesn't believe the gospel, when they hear it, who's to blame at that point? It's not the gospel's fault. This is what the canon article, um, which one was it? Article 9 said, it's not the Christ's fault. It's not God the Father's fault. It's not the Spirit's fault. It's the fault of the individual who hears it and rejects it. That's the one who is to blame. And that's because they are actually truly rejecting it. And they, they illustrate this in the ninth article with the parable of the sower. You probably remember that parable. It's, odds are high that it's like the most popular one of all the parables that Jesus taught about. If you remember, it's about a farmer, a man who is sowing seed. And he has this one kind of seed and he's walking along a path and he's throwing it down and the seed lands on these four different places. And the seed in that represents the gospel call. And the four types of ground or the four soils that it lands on represents four different kinds of people. Uh, one person automatically rejects it and it says there that Satan snatches it, this good news away immediately. They just don't believe at all. The next two receive it and they receive some blessing even from being associated with Christ outwardly. There's some fruit in their lives. They perhaps get baptized and participate in the Lord's Supper and participate in the life of the church in some way or another. But then for different reasons in the second and third type of soil, um, they choose to no longer believe it. And that seed that was planted is choked out. But then the last soil, the gospel seed, takes root and it produces fruit. In all four situations, the people are choosing. In each one, the people are choosing. But we understand from previous articles, and even from Jesus' teaching on the parables themselves, that the one who chooses rightly is doing so because God first loved them and saved them. Remember John fifteen sixteen. Jesus said, You did not choose me, 
but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. And so it's not a mystery or a conundrum that we can say with confidence that if we reject the gospel call, it's entirely our own fault. And conversely, embracing the gospel call is entirely due to God's free and good pleasure. God alone gets the glory, friends. Article 10, we're going to read through 14 here. These are longer. Article 10 is conversion as the work of God. It says, The fact that others who are called through the ministry of the gospel do come and are brought to conversion must not be credited to human effort, as though one distinguishes oneself by free choice from others who are furnished with equal or sufficient grace for faith and conversion, as the proud heresy of Pelagius maintains. Let me really quick comment. That's like the third time they've mentioned Pelagius again, because Pelagius had a wrong understanding of sin, and that wrong understanding of sin led to a wrong understanding of salvation. And because of that, the reformers... And the, the reformed at Dort saw the Arminians making a, a mistake that was not exactly the same mistake as Pelagius, but one that was similar to it. It was on the road to it. And it says, No, it must be credited to God. Just as from eternity God chose his own in Christ, so within time God effectively calls them, grants them faith and repentance, and having rescued them from the dominion of darkness, brings them into the kingdom of his Son, in order they might declare the wonderful deeds of the one who called them out of darkness into his marvelous light, and may boast not in themselves, but in the Lord, as apostolic words frequently testify in Scripture. 11. The Holy Spirit's work in conversion. Moreover, when God carries out this good pleasure in the elect, or works true conversion in them, God not only sees to it that the gospel is proclaimed to them outwardly and enlightens their minds powerfully by the Holy Spirit so they may rightly understand and discern the things of the Spirit of God, but by the effective operation of the same regenerating Spirit, God also penetrates into the inmost being, opens the closed heart, softens the hard heart, and circumcises the heart that is uncircumcised. God infuses new qualities into the will, making the dead alive, the evil one good, the unwilling one willing, and the stubborn one compliant. God activates and strengthens the will so that, like a good tree, it may be enabled to produce the fruits of good deeds. 12. Regeneration as a supernatural work. And this is the regeneration, the new creation, the raising of the dead, and the making alive so clearly proclaimed in the scriptures, which God works in us without our help. But this certainly does not happen only by outward teaching, by moral persuasion, or by such a way of working that after God's work is done, it remains in human power, whether or not to be reborn or converted. Rather, so, so in other words, God doesn't just act in you and, and get you 99.9% .9 of the way and then just wait for you to do the one other. Right? That's what they're saying there. And he says, rather, it's an entirely supernatural work, one that is the same time most powerful, most pleasing, a marvelous, hidden, and inexpressible work, which is not less than or inferior in power to that of creation or of raising the dead, as Scripture, inspired by the author of this work, teaches. That's why you would have in 2 Corinthians and in John, both John and the Apostle Paul appealing to the creation account when thinking also of salvation at the same time. It says, as a result... 
All those in whose hearts God works in this marvelous way are, are certainly, unfailingly, and effectively reborn and actually do believe. And then the will, now renewed, is not only activated and motivated by God, but in being activated by God, it is also itself active. And for this reason, people themselves, by the grace that they have received, are also rightly said to believe and repent. So belief and repent comes after this work of God in you, and you're really doing it. Because God has changed your desires, changed your will, taken your hard heart, given you a heart of flesh, so that now you are, you yourself are choosing to follow after Christ and believe. But don't think we have it all figured out. Article 13, the incomprehensible way of regeneration. In this life, believers cannot fully understand the way this work occurs. Meanwhile, they rest content with knowing and experiencing that by this grace of God, they do believe with a heart and love their Savior. And 14, the way God gives faith. In this way, therefore, faith is a gift of God, not in the sense that it is offered by God for people to choose, but that it is an actual fact bestowed on them, breathed and infused in them. Nor is this gift in the sense that God bestows only the potential to believe, and then waits assent, the act of believing by human choice, Rather, it is a gift in the sense that God, who works both willing and acting, and indeed works all things in all people, and then produces in them both the will to believe and the belief itself. So again, what they're saying in that last section, they've said previous times before, is that God doesn't just get you part of the way, and then it's up to you to do the rest. Saying, no, God takes you all the way unto salvation. And so this is a real important distinction or section in laying out the distinctions between Arminianism and Calvinism. And I appreciate the way that they framed these articles, though they're kind of long for us to just read, but I appreciate the way they did it for our clarity and for the depth of their substance. And again, some of it isn't even new. Article 10 spoke to that point of conversion that it must not be credited to human effort, but that it's the human response to the effort of God in our lives. And why? It says that so we may not boast in ourselves. And thankfully, there aren't many Arminians or many two or three point Calvinists today who want to boast in themselves for salvation. It would be a very weird thing if you someone was boasting in themselves for their salvation as if they had some credit for it. That would be a red flag for sure. If someone was ever like, oh yeah, I did, I did the right thing so I can be saved. That would be a red flag for you to, to notice. But you can see in this article how the canons are somewhat systematic. That is how they are building off of each other. They connect. And so it says, just as God from eternity chose his own in Christ, so within time, God effectively calls them. Election, atonement, things we've already talked about, and then calling are all on display here. And so whereas Arminianism is rooted with a, condition, a conditional antecedent that God must have seen faith in a person and then base election on that condition with a conditional atonement, the condition being the choice of the recipient of that grace that goes before supposedly, and then a conditional conversion based on human willingness and receiving, Reformed theology, on the other hand, says it's unconditional from start to finish. Or if we must recognize a condition, the condition we would see is that we understand that we are sinners and Christ needed to save us from that sin. But in eternity past, 
God freely chose us at the cross. Christ definitely redeemed us, and in time, he effectually converts us. There's not really any middle ground here, folks. It's either divine sovereignty from start to finish, or it's human autonomy. And now Article 11 gives a clear statement on the sovereign work of God in salvation. And to be fair, Arminians and and even most Protestants today who reject Calvinism, they believe in human depravity and divine grace. But Arminians and many Christians today believe that most people have been given sufficient grace for faith and conversion. And all they need to do is activate their free will and grab onto it. In contrast to that, Dort asserted that we need more than just an enabling grace. We need the active and the powerful work of the Holy Spirit and it, through the work of regeneration. And so it said this in Article 11, By the effective operation of the same regenerating spirit, God also penetrates into the inmost being, opens the closed heart, softens the hard heart, and circumcises the heart that is uncircumcised. God infuses new qualities into the will, making the dead will alive, and the evil one good, and the unwilling one willing the stubborn one compliant. So there's many allusions to scripture in that, in that kind of a long sentence, but let me read some passages with emphasis so that you can see where they're getting these ideas from. John 1, 12 through 13. But to all who did receive him, who received Christ, that is, who believed in his name, he, God, gave the right to become the children of God. Here's the important part. Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of, of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In other words, the right to believe in Christ and to receive him is, comes out of the work of being born of God. Not born of the, the will of the flesh or the will of man, but born of God. Ezekiel eleven nineteen, God says, And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. Romans 2.29 But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. The letter means the law. His praise is not from man, but from God. And Article 11 was was really solid there, drenched in biblical theology. Article 12 is another banger. It's another really good one. It's a heavy hitter. Here, Dort asserts a very key issue. What causes regeneration? R.C. Sprawl, who died five years ago now, he was well known for making this the main hinge in the debate. The question is, is does faith precede regeneration? Does a person's acting of faith go before being born again? Or does regeneration precede faith? And how we answer that is important. If faith precedes regeneration, then we must in some sense admit that each person who is saved played a part in it, however small. If faith comes before your regeneration, someone has, the person who exercises that faith, has some room in some way to boast. But if faith precedes, excuse me, but if regeneration precedes faith, and it does, 
then we dare not seek to steal glory from God in saying that we played a part in our salvation. The only part we play is bringing the sin that needed atoning. And the Bible is clear here, I would assert. We could look at John 3, but we've been in John a lot, and we're going to look at it in just a minute anyways. But let's look at Titus 3 instead. Titus 3, again, we looked at that earlier. Or at least Titus, we looked at earlier, not Titus 3. Titus 3, 4 through 5. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done in us by righteousness. Okay, He saved us, not by works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. Pay attention now because he defines that mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. The goodness and the loving kindness of our God and Savior appears. It, it, it appears. We don't bring it on, friends. Our faith didn't cause us to be born again, but being born again causes us to have faith in the living God. And although we can understand this concept and this principle, we can't fully understand regeneration. Article 13 points out that it is incomprehensible. Now, we can think of John 3 and what Jesus says to Nicodemus. And there he he says, it's like the wind, this this act of, of being born again. It's like the wind coming upon someone. If you remember, Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, which symbolizes the fact in John's writings, that he's not really sure, he's, he's in darkness, he's, he's not understanding. And so he asks Jesus, what must a man do to be born again? And then Jesus, you know, gives him these reasons, these answers, and then he finally explains it. And he says, it's like the wind. You know where it's coming from, or no, you could feel its presence, but you don't know from where it comes or from where it goes. In other words, we can't bring it on. It's what God does, and we see the results of it in people. That's what is actually meant by irresistible grace. It doesn't mean, irresistible grace does not mean that people are dragged, kicking and screaming to the mercy seat of Christ, that they're trying to resist it, but they can't. What's meant by irresistible grace is that when a person is acted upon by God in regeneration, the grace of the gospel is actually what we desire. It's, it's irresistible to us at that point. And before that, before regeneration, we are resisting grace. It's easy to understand, isn't it? For example, in my own life, I knew about God, I knew about the Trinity and the cross at a very early age, but I wanted nothing to do with God from about 11 to 22. Anytime a friend or a relative would tell me anything about God and his gospel, I was resisting it. But in 2003, when God saved me, the grace of the gospel was exactly what I wanted. I I didn't want it until God saved me. And so this is actually really easy, guys. Part of me is always perplexed as to why people reject the doctrine of irresistible grace. We need only ask ourselves, do we want to resist the grace of God? Or do we find it irresistible? Yes, we do sin at times and we pursue the flesh, even as Christians. But God, when that happens, doesn't God bring us out of it and back to the cross? 
the doctrine of irresistible grace really is helpful for us, even in light of us thinking about our election or hearing the voice of Jesus. Do we want grace? Do, do we desire grace? Or do you not really care about it? Well, if you want grace, praise God, because the person who is still in his or her bondage of sin, they don't actually want grace. And one more important point, Article 14 explains the nature of faith a bit, and this really is helpful in light of the way that people like to oppose Calvinism today. For me, it's, it's a bit comical because you can tell that a person has their theology divorced from history and the church by the way, the way they make a caricature of faith here. That is, it's not uncommon for people who oppose Calvinism to say that, well, hey, look, faith is a gift, and that gift can be rejected. Just like right now, for example, if Steve took a present out of a stocking and said, here, take this gift, you would be wise to reject that gift, right? You would be wise to refuse it, knowing about Steve's stocking of doom. But that's not what is meant by the gift of faith with the Reformed. Note what Article 14 says. It says, in this way, therefore, faith is a gift from God not in the sense that it is offered by God for people to choose. It's not like God is putting faith in his hand and saying, here, just take it and grab it. It's here. It's yours. Now just grab it. That's not what's happening. The way that we understand faith biblically is that it is an actual fact bestowed upon them, breathed and infused in them. And there's not really a perfect analogy that can be used here to, to describe the gift of faith. But just again, remember what Jesus told Nicodemus with the wind. If you're going to use an analogy ever, you're probably the most safe if you use one that Jesus himself used. Because it's not like you'd be disagreeing with me at that point. You'd have to disagree with Jesus about this. So if it's windy outside, we don't refuse the wind, right? We can hide from it, sure. But if you're outside and it's windy, it's yours. So we see in this third and fourth main point a defense for total depravity and for irresistible grace, two doctrines that especially make sense and are clear in light of the whole main points that are presented at Dort. And for the sake of our time, we're going to skip the last three articles of these points of doctrine. We've kind of touched on them anyway. It's responses to God's grace, uh, regeneration's effect, and God's use of means in regeneration. Again, that would be how it is that he calls people to share the gospel and to present Christ before people. And then tomorrow morning, we'll cover the fifth main point, which is on the perseverance of the saints. So let's pray now, and then we'll have time for discussion or take any questions that you guys might have. But our Father in heaven, we understand the effect of the curse from the fall and how damaging it is to people. It's not hard to see how evil this world is and the capacity for evil that it has. And we know that it's even your grace and your mercy in, in giving to people the light of nature and the law and as in such a way that it restrains much evil in the world. But we know that those things aren't good enough to cause a person to be saved. So we thank you for that special grace and revelation that is the gospel. And we pray, Lord God, that you would help us all to find grace irresistible, Lord. We know that you accomplish your purposes and that those who were chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world will come to faith 
for your grace is irresistible. It's effectual. So we pray, Lord God, that you would help us to see things as you've revealed it in your word and that you'd help us to glorify you in light of them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, let me stop this.